They never talk about, they never identify the people who are killed in Palestine, or to use their word, dead in Palestine. They never give their names, never give their age. They never bring the human dimension of it. It's either numbers or figures, and everything is disputed. This podcast is supported by Amazing. Amazing is a business that I followed for the past three years, since its early stages, and they empower Muslim customers to buy from Muslim businesses. So whether you're getting married and you need help for a wedding, whether you're a business owner and you need digital marketing services, or whether you just want to do some cupping, Amazing is there to help. So go on their website and choose the service you need and help support the Muslim-friendly businesses. And since the start of the killing in Palestine, they have also put together a list to boycott companies and I'll also put a link to that and they've got Coca-Cola on there, they've got Starbucks, Costa Coffee and they're just a group of young people who are good at tech and they're doing their best pooling their resources together to help the cause in Palestine and 50% of the profits go to Palestine. Welcome to another episode of the I Love Monday podcast. Today we have a special episode not related to business but more related to the current situation we have in Palestine and who better than the founder of Friends of Al-Aqsa, Dr. Ismail Adam Patel, to speak us through the history of Palestine, what Friends of Al-Aqsa do, and then the current situation and how we can help. Welcome to the show. Jazakallah for us for inviting me, and assalamu alaikum to you, and assalamu alaikum to all your listeners as well. So could you tell us a bit of what Friends of Al-Aqsa actually do? Friends of Al-Aqsa was established 26 years ago. Uh, we are an NGO, non-governmental organization, and our duty and maybe responsibilities uh, and objectives are about campaigning, lobbying, educating, uh, protesting, and basically bringing about the plight of the Palestinians to the public and political arena. Why, why did you start it? The start is very strange, in fact. Uh, I was invited to visit Palestine uh, in the early 90s. Uh, it was accidental. I wasn't supposed to be going there. It was my friend who was invited in a bigger group, but he couldn't attend, so he asked me if I could go. I had never even heard of Palestine, and I couldn't have been able to point it to you on a map where it was. So I went there for, and it was only for a three-day trip. So they said, you know, why don't you join them, this group from Leicester where I live? So I decided to join them. And when I went there, uh, I was shocked. Uh, for several reasons that I had just, I was a young person, graduated from British University, uh, up and coming business person myself with several businesses as an optometrist. And I thought I knew the world. And when I went there, I realized that how come I wasn't aware that a group of people were occupied. And more than that was the idea of Al-Aqsa. In fact, I remember distinctly when I was taken to the Haram of Al-Aqsa, there were Palestinians telling me about its importance. And I first thought, you know, these guys are maybe just trying to exploit the tourist here. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe that that was so important. And of course, then I realized and that dawned upon me uh, the importance of Masjid al-Aqsa. Uh, and more than that, of course, is the occupation of the Palestinian people. And I come from Africa. I had visited South Africa prior to that, and I had seen apartheid firsthand. And I thought, this is apartheid. How come I, I was not aware of it? And I suppose that shock. Uh, coming out of the slumber of my own ignorance spurred me to try and educate the people. Uh, and that was the very first. And initially I couldn't speak, I wasn't a public speaker. So first of all, my few friends and relatives 
And they were all also perplexed and quite uh, taken aback of the significance and the plight of the Palestinians. And they said, you know, why don't you have a bigger event? So we had an event, but as I couldn't speak publicly, I had to invite other people. So I had to go and search for Palestinians who could speak about it. And then it sort of went from one stage to another. And then we did a few leaflets and then somebody said, you know, why don't you have an organization? And then it just grew. So there was never a template or trying to create something. It was uh, organic. It happened because of my experiences and the fact that I was taken. Of course, as Muslim, we believe that it was a blessing for me from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we should be able to do this. So from then to now, have your objectives changed in terms of from firstly to educating the masses, now it's more lobbying the government or lobbying the MPs? Sure, I mean, it has expanded rather than I would say changed. What has happened is there's more and more um, responsibilities that we're taking on, on board and objectives trying to achieve uh, from education, as you mentioned. Uh, lobbying is very, very important, political lobbying in Britain in particularly. And of course, campaigning. And campaigning means trying to redress uh, the misinformation about the Palestinians, whether it be in the media, in the educational sector, or the mainstream. So that kind of stuff is also very important. But beyond and above that is, of course, trying to mobilize the community. Uh, so for concepts like a boycott and divestment and sanctions, and then protests uh, and other events that are related to Palestine. Like we, we have something called a Palestine Expo, uh, in which we have tens of thousands of people attend, trying to show the cultural side of Palestine. And of course, then working with university students um, and other trade unions and other sectors of society, Muslim and non-Muslim. So you can see that it, the work has expanded over the year, definitely. You've also written a book about the brief history of Palestine, isn't it? Sure. Just to briefly let us know about the history. So going back to the Ottoman times, mm. where Palestine was a thriving economy, mm -hmm. um, and then 1917 happened. What happened in 1917 and how did it happen? Of course, history is where we want to sort of make an intersection where we begin. So if we begin from the Ottoman Empire, then the region of Palestine uh, was controlled under the Ottoman. Uh, there was no state called the Palestine state, but there's definitely a region called Palestine and the people called Palestinians. That, that does exist. And then in 1917, the British government, the foreign secretary rather than the British government, wrote something called the Balfour Declaration. It's a very famous document in which he promises the Jewish people of Europe a homeland in Palestine. Now, there's something very ironic about this, uh, in the sense that this declaration is written by a British foreign secretary when Palestine did not belong to Britain. So the Ottoman hadn't surrendered at that stage, and he had not consulted the Palestinians, and he was offering it as a homeland to another people, the European Jews. And this is of course, an imperialist mindset that Britain was a superpower of the time, more powerful than America is today, and it thought that it would give anything around the world it liked the way it liked it, to whom it liked, right? And of course, that document becomes the template upon which the Zionist movement in Europe uh, is galvanized and is shown to once Britain then occupies Palestine from the Ottoman Empire, uh, it becomes a template for the Zionist movement uh, to move the European Jews and try and create a homeland in Palestine. But what is very significant, that between 1917 and up to mid-1930s, the European Jews would not accept the Zionist movement, as in taking the Jews out of Europe and transporting them to Palestine. 
because majority of, the, of them thought that it is better for them to try and resist the anti-Semitism, the discrimination internally and try and find a way out. Uh, and Zionist as a movement and as an option was not entertained. In fact, uh, many Jewish Board of Deputies right across Europe, Austria, Hungary, even Germany, even Britain, up until 1939, refused to accept the Zionist option, meaning taking the Jews out of Europe and putting them into Palestine. Because they understood uh, that if they tried to do that, there is an indigenous people that are existence there, and there would not be possible to create a homeland there apart from expelling the indigenous people. And of course, the situation changes because of the Second World War. Uh, Nazi Germany comes into power and the Holocaust. And so those horrors meant that what was now the only option left for them was to move out of Europe and shift into Palestine. And this was also facilitated by the European and the Allied, the Allied powers because they refused to take the refugees from Germany. Yeah, and this is very interesting that while Britain was trying to shift the Zionists and the Jews of Europe into Palestine, Britain itself would not allow Jewish refugees from Germany or wider Europe to come in and settle here. And if you look at the newspapers of the late 1920s and early 30s, the language used against the Jewish people mirrors the same language that is being used against the refugees today. You know, as if the outsiders are coming in, they're going to take our resources, our jobs, they're going to bring the country down. All those negative tropes that are used against refugees today was used against the Jewish people in the 1920s and 30s. And then the Jewish refugees moved into Palestine in sure. 1942. And for a good number of years, they were living peacefully, right? No, the, the problem here is, and it starts very early on, because the Zionist movement right from the beginning its objective was to create a state. So when they were taking <coughs> Jewish communities, the refugees, and those who were also ideologically inclined to creating the state, so there's two types of people here. One, of course, the refugees and the discriminated people in Europe, the Jewish community, and those who are ideologically inclined to thinking of creating a state. As soon as they moved into Palestine, they created their own enclaves. They wanted to create their own state, so they be wanting to be independent. Whatever they did was to do within themselves. So they isolated themselves from the Palestinians. They did not go into Palestine as refugees. And this is a big distinction. And of course, during this time, Britain is controlling Palestine. Britain has the mandate over Palestine. And Britain is allowing them to create what are known as kibbutz, uh, own enclaves, independent little villages and cities and towns in which Britain is helping them uh, to facilitate that and and embed them within the territory, if you like. And of course, then 1947, after the war, uh, what happens is there two battalions, uh, the Zionist battalions, are trained by Britain. They actually see action, and they have their own flag within the British Army during the Second World War. So they're very, very powerful. And they're now in a rush to create their own state. So they start even attacking the British at that stage now, towards the end, after, immediately after the Second World War. In fact, several British uh, officers are killed. They bomb King David Hospital in Jerusalem. Uh, I think uh, Wiseman, yes, uh, in particularly, is then uh, by British government is considered as a terrorist and as a wanted individual in Britain. So there's a, a change in dynamics. So what Britain does at that stage is it abandons Palestine. And it says, you know, this, is, this problem is too much for us. But by then it had already 
made the Zionist movement so powerful, both economically and militarily, uh, that when they abandon Palestine, what they say, we'll give it to the United Nations. Now the United Nations can take care of it. But remembering that the United Nations has just been formed immediately after the second. So it's a very young body uh, which is being formed by America and Britain as pivotal players and a few other, of course, European countries. So they're the pivotal players in forming the United Nations. And Britain says, you know what, the Palestinian issue has to be dealt with by the United Nations. And they leave Palestine, mandate Palestine. The United Nations, what it does is without consulting the Palestinians, it does not ask them what they want. With the, for, with the pressure from America and Britain and few European countries, decide to petition Palestine. The Palestinians were, of course, shocked and taken aback. This, we've been living here for thousands of years. This is our home. A body in America, this new body called the United Nations, is now saying we should give away something like 58% of the land when these refugees don't even own 7% of the land. So at that stage in 47, 48, the Zionist movement did not even own 7% of the territory. Yet the United Nations says, you know, 58% has to go to them and create a state of Israel. The Palestinians refused. But at that stage, militarily, the Zionist movement was very powerful. And they were, of course, silently being backed by Britain as well and the powers to be at the time. Uh, then you have what is, what's known as the Nakba, or what the Israelis call the War of Independence between 47 and 48 in which the Zionist movement then ethnically cleanse 531 Palestinian villages. 70% of Palestinians are made refugees. And those refugees are refugees even today. And they now account to something like 7 million refugees. They have never been able to come back to their homes. Uh, and instead of 58%, 78% of mandate Palestine is then occupied by uh, the new Zionist movement. And the state of Israel is then emerges at the end of a barrel of a gun. We must understand this, that the state of Israel does not emerge through the United Nations as how it's been uh, sort of portrayed. It emerges at the end of the barrel of the gun through the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians, through the creating of refugees. Yeah? And the other important factor here is that when United Nations accepts Israel as a state, it accepts it on the condition of a UN Resolution 194, that we accept uh, that Israel is a state, but it must abide by UN Resolution 194. And that resolution states that every Palestinian who was expelled during 47, 48, the refugees, have a right of return. And that resolution has been enacted over 150 times the last time I looked, over 150 times, yet Israel has not abided by it. Why did United Nations give 58% of Palestine to Israel at that point? What was their reasoning behind it? The reasoning is, of course, the horrors of the Second World War was one of the reasoning. Uh, and I think that is the main catalyst that moved the world uh, to the sympathy to the Jewish people. I mean, you, you would have to be moved, you know, when there are <coughs> six million people massacred. You know, we have a Holocaust taking place. People were moved. But what they were, the injustices that was being carried out on the indigenous people was not looked at, and that was rather overlooked. And what was failed here is the fact to ask the people who moved from Nazi Germany to live as equals with indigenous Palestinians, and that was not looked at. And of course, the narrative was, at this stage, the Bible was used, that the Jews were originally from Palestine, which they were, 
but that was you know the time of Prophet Dawood and Prophet Sulaiman of Islam. So we're going back three thousand years, two, two and a half, three thousand years ago, uh, and using that as a mandate. And of course, you can't use any religious text as a title date to property. Otherwise, you know, Muslims, our Quran says everything uh, has been created by Allah and belongs to Muslims. And it's Allah's land. We can't go around using the Quran, going around the world saying, look, the Quran says this, this is our property. But they, they use that text. So they use that as an to, their, to their advantage, the Zionist did. Uh, and then, of course, the sympathy of the world to the survivors of the Holocaust. Uh, and those factors, and of course, then of course, there's, there's a third factor of the geopolitics, that what they saw in particularly Britain, if you look at Balfour's uh, thinking, that he is an anti-Semite himself. I mean, this is very well recorded, uh, and he, the reason he wants to help the Zionist movement, because he saw this as a colonialist enterprise. He saw that by planting the Zionist entity and creating this state of Israel that would emerge, that would be beneficial the powers be at that time Britain as imperial power and then America saw it like that as well that you know by having Israel there will be beneficial for their colonialist enterprise so there is that colonialist element as well what's the difference between Zionists and Jews because some people put them as one but of course they're two separate groups essentially absolutely not all Jews are Zionists and not all Zionists are Jews okay uh, there is a very I won't say very big, but there's a significant number of Jews who are adamantly against Zionism, even today. Uh, the, particularly the Naturai Karta is a sect within the Jewish uh, community uh, who are completely against uh, Zionism. And there is, of course, non-Jews. Uh, so even now, if you look at some of the political leaders in Europe who are not Jews, but they will support Israel because they believe in this colonialist enterprise. They believe in the right of the colonialist authority of their superiority over the indigenous people. So it's a political ideology. Zionism is a political ideology, and we shouldn't mix it up with a faith Judaism. They are two completely distinct things. So if we fast forward to, let's say, 20 years ago, there was quite a few wars. They've had sure. wars with Egypt, Jordan, and then things kind of settled down, but the settlements continued. Mm -hmm. And then, I think what was it, about 17 years ago, when they continued bombing Gaza and the West Bank. Sure. So if we sort of main, if you like, the main uh, junctures within the history between 47 and present day is, of course, the 1967 war in which then Israel occupies what was the remaining 22% of Palestine, which was West Bank on the right-hand side and Gaza Strip. Now, the Gaza is very interesting that the Gaza was twice its original size that we see today. Uh, and in 47, they had Israel had occupied, so it reduced it to the size we see it. And most of the people in Gaza are refugees. And if you think about it, where did these refugees come from? They came from the, the wider, bigger Gaza. And so today, when people in Gaza, they look across that wall that Israel has built, they can see their homeland. They can see their villages. They can see the land where the fathers owned and cultivated. Uh, and so cities like Ashdod and Ashkelon, they are part of original Gaza. And people can relate to that. That was our home. So that's, that's something we need to understand. And of course, in West Bank, when they occupied in 1967, they started expanding settlements within that. And there's something like uh, 250,000, if my uh, figures are correct, near, near to that, settle, uh, settlers within West Bank. Uh, it has got something like 650 checkpoints. Uh, there's a wall that goes around cities. It's not a straight line wall. It goes from one city to another and circling each Palestinian village and city. 
in the West Bank. In the West Bank. So it's cutting off one area from the other. So, for example, it is extremely difficult for somebody living in, say, Nablus to go to Ramallah because they have to go through so many checkpoints. It might be 30, 40 miles away, but it would take them a day to travel. So that has been totally fractured. The whole of West Bank has been fractured. And of course, within the West Bank, the Palestinians are deprived of water, the right of movement because of the checkpoints and basic human necessities. So, for example, in the city of Kalkilia, which has one entrance and exit point, all the Palestinians need to use that. And that entrance and exit point is open at the behest of the Israeli soldiers. So one day they could open it between 9 and 5, the next day it could be 9 and 1. So if you just imagine, if you had an appointment outside the city, or if you have uh, your work that takes you outside the city, or you have your farm that's outside the city, so you go out, but by the time you come back, if it's closed, you have to stay outside. There's no way you can go back to your home. Where do they stay? Just they, they stay outside, like either the wall or, you know, this is, this is the, the daily misery that the Palestinians have to go through. And that this has been going on for decades. And this is what we need to understand, that the crisis of the Palestinians started from the time Britain occup uh, occupied it from the Ottomans, uh, but it got worse during the 47-48 war. And of course, it absolutely became catastrophic after the 1967 war. And that is why a major international organization like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the United Nations, Beit Salem, which is an Israeli organization, actually, a Jewish organization, all of them consider that Israel is practicing apartheid, and this discrimination, the racism against the Palestinian people. Your organization has expanded, as you said, to sure. lobby the MPs, um, but do you also do aid work there? No, we don't. We, we, in Britain, if you do charitable work, then you, you're not allowed to do political campaigning. So and there's a the clear, uh, clear division. Uh, of labor, if you like, in Britain. So we are not a registered charity, we are an NGO. In fact, we are registered with the United Nations, uh, in which we are the representative of the Palestinian people in the diaspora, meaning from outside Palestine. Um, how many times have you been to Palestine? I've only been twice. Um, the last time I was allowed to go in was in 2000, so that's 23 years ago. Uh, I tried to go again on the Mavi Marmara, the flotilla, if you the recall. The Turkish flotilla. That's why it was. It, although it originated from Turkey, uh, it had international um, passengers in it uh, from right across Europe, Africa, and also Asia. Uh, they were, we were trying to take aid to Gaza and try and break the siege of Gaza because the siege of Gaza started in 2007, and Israel is controlling the land, the water, and the air. So we thought, you know, the one way to help them is to take aid through a ship, which could take a large quantity. Unfortunately, we were attacked by the Israeli Navy. That was in 2010 and taken as prisoners to, to Israel. How long were you taken as prisoner for? A couple of days, uh, not for very long, uh, but uh, it, allowed, it took the international community and the Turkish government to help for release uh, and go back. Were there not about nine people? Nine people were, were killed by the Israelis as well. Uh, they were shot. Um, while we were in there, and of course that was very, very painful because I was one of the individuals trying to, to see, to help and get aid, uh, uh, first aid. And you mentioned that that's the last time you were allowed to go in is 2000, so now you can't go in? Or yes, I, I was, I've been banned from 2000, I think. Uh, they refused entry to me and, and not to, to go back. What's so the reason? The reason is basically I highlight the plight of the Palestinian people. 
there's no other reason. Uh, because you want to talk about it, you want to bring about justice. It is really, we live in a very strange world, uh, Brother Zahid, uh, that we, those who want to ask for peace and justice, those who want to uphold international law, are somehow seen as radical and fundamentalist and extremist. Uh, yet those who want to do the occupation, the subjugation of people, uh, the flagrant violation of law, uh, they are somehow seen as the people who are, you know, conducive to, to be seen with. Can you put it that high? I think, and I think that's one of the things that you lead on when you speak at the marches. It's there's no justice, there's no peace, and for the masses, the media is terribly one-sided. Sure. And in this particular instance, since the 7th of October, we've had so much information on social media. And the media is saying one thing and social media says the other thing. And we've had organizations like BBC saying the Palestinian marches, the ones that you've organized, mm. are for Hamas when they were, they were for Palestine, for the freedom of Palestine. Mm. How do you set about trying to trying to control that narrative? There's several things. First thing, let me say, let me say why this is happening. I mean, this is a process of dehumanization. Uh, there's a, I think it's a strategic approach. Uh, where the, in particularly the elites, the institutional of the BBC in particular, and in, in fact I would say even our government, are trying to undermine the Palestinian cause. And the one way of doing it is to equate them to um, fundamentalist groups and terrorist groups. So what you do is you identify one group here, for example Hamas has been identified as terrorist, so all Palestinians are Hamas, and all Therefore, all anything related to that are terrorist. So anybody trying to then in reverse supporting the Palestinians, you're a terrorist. So you can see how this sort of quite easily fits into that narrative. And what we have to try and do is, of course, show by evidence. Now, anybody who has been to our demonstrations, you know, the first time, a couple of two weeks ago, we had 150,000. Last week, we had 300,000. There was no single chant for terrorism. There's no single chant for violence. We are asking to end violence. We are asking for ceasefire. We're asking to end the siege of Gaza. Yeah. So when that is equated as violence, then I think most people who attend this, and in particularly now the social media, is the force that is countering, if you like, quote unquote, the mainstream narrative. And the mainstream, I think, is in trouble uh, because the, in the past, they were the main channel, the go-to place for people to get information. It no longer is. People are actually going there as a second resource to see how biased they are. So to just think about the language that in particularly that BBC is using. In the past two weeks, it has been saying that Palestinians have died, right? Whereas the Israelis are killed. You know, dying is True, a natural process. It's, it's, you know, also they're talking about Israel being bombed, whereas there's explosions in Gaza. They never talk about, they never identify the people who are killed in Palestine, or to, to use their word, dead in Palestine. They never give their names, they never give their age, they never bring the human dimension of it. It's either numbers or figures, and everything is disputed. So Palestinians say this, but Israel doesn't agree to it. And more worrying than that has been the two hostages that have been released recently. The old, the old lady, I forget her name, and uh, Yasmin Parot, uh, she was released earlier. Now, if you look not on just social media, which may be docked, Let's, let's put that aside. But if you look at other mainstream media like Al Jazeera and other international media, 
you realize you see, you're almost schizophrenic. You, you don't know how, what to believe here. Because in one part they're saying, you know, despite the fact that they were taken, of course, that is a great anxiety and great concern. But how they were treated and the fact that they were released, they were saying, you know what, they were reasonable to us under the circumstances. Yeah? Yet how it's portrayed on the BBC as if they've been, you know, they've been harassed, that they've, they've been physically attacked and all these other dimensions of emotions that are aroused against the Palestinians. And that, of course, makes a lot of young people try to look other sources. And I think this is, in a way, this is not helpful for us in Britain. Uh, because when you have our mainstream channel trying to portray this uh, conflict in a biased perspective, it loses credibility for other stuff. And you know, it's not, it's not good for the country, it's not good for the people, because they will always be looking. And this is where, unfortunately, the conspiracy theories comes in and those who are creating other material that are definitely not true, uh, then are hooked upon by, by the masses. But the problem starts by the mainstream, because they are the established people. They should be able to provide investigative journalism and objective journalism. It appears to me that the, all the... Uh, necessity of a journalist, you know, being objective, being uh, investigative, being able to report with evidence goes out of the window when they're covering the issue of Palestine. The rest of the time they try to use it, but not when it's to do with Palestine. It's like when there was a Reuters journalist who was killed by Israeli airstrikes. Reuters themselves did not mention he got killed by Israeli airstrikes, right. just airstrikes. Mm. Or there's CNN and other... Um, other media companies where they show that the journalist is taking cover or the reporter is taking cover and there's people walking past. That's right. And on social media, people can see that. Whereas the older generation, maybe where they just watch the news, they might not see the full picture. But because the younger generation are more looking more and more in depth, then they can generally see the wider picture. But then what also happened, like you said, confusion. Because one is reporting one side, sure. the other is reporting the other side, and there's complete different and opposing views and opposing information for one event. How do we combat that? Well, we have to look at what the objectives of, I think what youngsters, in particular young people are doing is they're understanding where the source is coming from. And that is in a way, this is what I was saying, it's unhealthy. Because if it's coming from something like BBC, people are considering it as immediately suspect and they will then go and check it. You want to fact check it, which is in a way good, uh, but it also undermines the whole thing. So what we need to do is to have reliable sources from the ground uh, who have been authenticated and other outlets. The mainstream media are very much on edge and they're putting people on edge rather in terms of there's plenty of anti-Semitic attacks. At the same time, we've seen in Chicago there's been Islamophobic attacks. This indicates that it's a Muslim issue and a Jewish issue. But is it a Muslim versus Jew, or is it something completely different? I think the first thing is this is nothing to do with Muslim and Jews. Uh, this is a colonialist enterprise, a project uh, which is racist in nature, and it wants to occupy Palestinian people. And Palestinians are Muslims, Christians, and people of all faiths and no faiths. We should also remind ourselves that uh, Christianity started from Palestine. Isa al-Islam was born in Palestine. It was raised from Palestine. The most important churches in Christendom are in Palestine. In fact, the church that was just bombed in Gaza was one of the oldest going back to the Roman Empire. 
right? So we have to understand that this is not a Jewish-Muslim issue, as simple as that. Yet, it is perceived like that because, in particularly, our politicians want to see, want to portray it like that. And hence, we see this increase uh, in both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. While anti-Semitism has increased in Britain, and uh, Islamophobia in the last two weeks has almost gone up by 100% compared to last year. So Muslims are also being attacked. Uh, and, and here, I think what we need to then bring it back home is the government's deliberate uh, polarization of the society by portraying this as if it's got to do with Muslims and, and Jews. And we, in particularly the Muslims, in particularly in Britain and the organizations like Friends of Al-Aqsa, we are at the forefront of saying that this is not a Jewish-Muslim issue. In fact, most of our demonstration will have a Jewish contingency demonstrating, helping with us, asking for freedom. And many a times, uh, many Jews speak from the platform as well. So in particularly last Saturday, we had Jewish people speaking from the platform. So we don't see it as a Jewish-Muslim issue, but we do see it as injustice committed by the state of Israel. And, and I think we need to be able to be very clear about that. So why is it that Muslims are, whenever they go on the talk shows, TV shows, the first question they ask is, do you condemn the attacks on 7th of October? Why are Muslims only asked this? Well, this is, of course, uh, for several reasons. I mean, I can't ask, I can't think of for them, but I can only analyze what, what this is doing. First, it's a misleading question because it presupposes that the problem started on 7th of October. That's the first thing. As if this was in a vacuum, the Israelis were living in peace with the Palestinians and they were doing nothing, and all of a sudden they got attacked on 7th of October. As we have already discussed, this problem started way before that, in 1947-48. Uh, Palestinians you know, have been under subjugation and occupation since then. So this is a long-term problem. But the second reason they also ask that question is to, to show that to differentiate or to bring a division within the Muslim community itself, or, or not just Muslims, but here anybody who's trying to ask for justice for the Palestinians. Because as a colonizer, the first rule of colonialism is you must create a division within the colonized. You must create the good and the bad. Once you do that, you, do, you weaken that society. So what they're trying to do is use the old colonialist British imperialist ideology of divide and rule. They, the British Empire did it Literally, now it's being done, if you like, uh, psychologically uh, and narratively. So in a narrative sense that they want to make sure that certain people who support the Palestinians themselves are divided on what part of Palestine you support, which part you, you allow it to happen. So this is, a, if you like, a very old propaganda tool uh, used by the uh, uh, imperialist and the colonialist. So how do we, how do we go about trying to solve this from an Islamophobic perspective? Because obviously you have organizations like MEND who mm. actively fight on behalf of people who have been well, racially attacked. Sure. Um, but how do we as a nation or community come together and solve this issue? Because it's, it's a very delicate issue. And it happens in our workplaces, it happens in public, it happens subconsciously even. Mm. There's several levels. First, of course, is the Islamophobia that is physical, uh, being abused, uh, physically abused, uh, being sworn at, uh, verbally abused, and particularly our sisters, you know, their headscarf being pulled and so forth. I would actually, you know, strangely say that is low-level Islamophobia. 
because that, for those kind of stuff, you report to the police, you, you try and get redress. But the more greater danger that is taking place in Britain as well is the institution Islamophobia that emerges from our institutes, in particularly the state institute, the government, and the police structuring, and the civil, if you like, the courts themselves. And they are very dangerous. Now, let me give you some examples. By our Home Secretary uh, stating that whoever goes on Palestinian demonstrations, they're called mobs, that's the word she used, to say that potentially she instructed the police to look very carefully to see if the flags, Palestinian flags being flying, whether they could be illegal, or certain slogans, they're illegal. But at the same time, and this is the important part, at the same time, a British individual who's sympathetic to Israel can do and say whatever they like in Britain. Not only that, they can go to Israel, pick up a gun and fight in the Israeli army and nothing can happen to them. They have total immunity. So you have law being implemented in two different ways. This is, if you like, apartheid. You know, we're creating second-class citizens in Britain. And who are the second-class citizens? The sympathizers for justice for Palestinians and Muslims. And this is, this is institutional Islamophobia. And that is the concerning part, because if this becomes embedded, then all sorts of other stuff then will emerge and will manifest itself. And Muslims will forever be giving up their civil liberties. You know, Britain just recently, there's an organization called Civitas, which looks at the, the civil liberty of, of a country. Uh, and Britain was demoted from, uh, from narrow to obstructive. So we are now, British, the civil liberty in Britain are the same as in Russia. That's overall, because of the different rules and regulations, how you can protest, how freedom of speech, what you can say, can't say. And this is greatly impacted upon the British uh, Muslims. And therefore, we should be, not be taken by surprise later on when something horrendous is likely to happen. And that's why it's very important to act and work for the issue of Palestine, not just because of what's happening in Palestine, but it is also ex exercising our freedom of speech, our freedom of political expression. And I think those being curbed, I think it's not healthy and conducive, not just to Britain, but in particular to the Muslims in Britain. So, free Palestine from the river to the sea, sure. both of them slogans for some reason are deemed offensive. Mm. Not by law just yet, but the whole secretary sure. has said it. Mm -hmm. What does from the river to the sea mean? Because they're saying it means the eradication of Israel. It doesn't mean that. It's absolutely the opposite. Uh, what it means from the river to the sea. So that means everything that Israel has occupied in 47, 48 and in 1967. We need to see justice there. As I, we've discussed that, you know, 531 Palestinian villagers ethnically cleansed, there's 7 million Palestinian refugees, and they need a right of return. So we want justice in that region. The second thing is all NGOs, major NGOs around the world, have shown that Palestinians who remain in the 1947-40 area, they're still Palestinians there. They are treated as second-class citizens. There's injustice against them. Yes, there's occupation and siege on Gaza and West Bank, where the situation is even more worse. But the Palestinians who remain in what became Israel is injustice. So when we say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, it means there'll be justice right across between Palestine, between the river and the sea. It's as simple as that. And of course, the occupier want to misconstrue that and try and sh shed a light that has absolutely nothing to do with the slogan itself. And of course, free Palestine basically is asking for freedom of the Palestinian people, the right 
for self-determination. Uh, all international instruments, particularly Geneva Convention, says that you know the Palestinian people are an occupied people. They, they, in fact, Geneva Convention even goes further and says that they have a right to resist. Any occupied people have a right to resist against the occupiers. And what we are saying that we need freedom for these people. We have, for example, the tube driver incident where he said free Palestine and police are looking into it. Sure. And then we have people saying from the river to the sea, free Palestine, not just a snow piece in your protest, but in when they say on social media, you got people attacking them saying anti-Semitic. And how do we get that freedom of speech back essentially? Because we don't have that freedom of speech, not anymore. I think we should persevere and continue. First, knowing very well what you mean when you say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free or free, free Palestine. You should know exactly what you mean when you're saying that. And then we should ask as many people as possible to continue doing that. Because then that, it's, this is a battle, if you like, uh, that is being fought here in Britain on behalf of Israel by the supporters of Israel. The undermining of the Palestinian rights is just not happening at the end of the gun or through the occupation of the Palestinians, but it is being justified uh, by our government in effect. And the reason our government justifies it is because the lobby uh, that is working for the propaganda of Israel is trying to make it so that the Palestinians and their supporters are not seen in the same light or as, as human as they ought to be seen. How do we continuously lobby the MPs? On your website, you have the letter that can go to MPs, sure. but that's more on an individual basis. And you're mentioning communities coming together to lobby. What's, what's the best way to lobby the local MP? And then obviously from local government to national government. There's many levels to do it. First is, of course, just writing a letter to your MP. The second way is we have something called the Parliament Lobby Day, like it's today, in fact, uh, where we're asking people to go into Parliament from different constituencies to see their MP. Before they see their MP, we'll brief them or what ask, questions to ask, and the MP will see them and air that. Uh, we also need political lobbying, just not for the MPs. I think we should also use the councillors. Uh, the councillors need to be lobbied because they also carry weight and they have a political mandate in that sense, although they work locally, but they can, make, uh, they can influence the national uh, consensus, especially of the political party. So we need to uh, campaign with the councillors as well. But more than that, I think we should also be able to join political parties. And I think that should be considered uh, as part of making sure that your voice is heard, especially the community you emerge from, whichever community you are. Uh, if you have only pol politicians emerging that have a certain narrative, then I don't think it's healthy for democracy. I think to make the democracy healthy, we need people from different backgrounds. And I think I would really encourage uh, our community uh, and people of justice and freedom and who are really, you know, majority of British people are good people, you know, and, and we need those people to enter politics despite its, uh, if you like, the negative aspects. And most good people don't want to enter it because, you know, they see it's so corrupt and polluted, if you like. That's why they don't want to be part of the political circle. But if we don't, if we leave it, then it will remain like that. And we need good people to enter politics and then try and change it, change the dynamics. So I think it's a multifactorial process uh, in different levels. And we should always be engaging, in particularly our turn to students, because I think they're, they're the new generations. They'll, they'll be the decision makers. Um, and they should also be very much engaged with what is happening around the world and in Britain as well. 
When you say join politics, what level do you mean? Well, I think they should join political parties. And, and what party they join is up to them. As long as they're good people, it doesn't matter which political party they join, as far as I'm concerned. And, and they should be able to change those parties because we have to have good people in every party. And when I say good, I mean people who are seeking for justice, who, who don't have duplicity. So, for example, two years ago, 650 MPs in Houses of Parliament unanimously told us occupation was wrong when it came to Ukraine. Unanimously told us stopping food and stopping gas to Ukraine is collective punishment. Yet, they are the same ones, majority of them, now either have gone completely silent or saying completely the opposite, telling us, no, it's fine, it's the occupier that has the right to continue with occupation. It is okay. We have a humanitarian lawyer in Kiastama who is saying it's okay to turn off water, gas, and fuel to, to 2.3 million people. You know, this, you're so shocked that, you know, you want to cry. I mean, it makes an average person angry, but you know, how, how can this happen? And these are the kind of politicians we've got, and we need to change that. So this is obviously one of the reasons you do your protests. Sure. When was the first protest you did? The first protest I did, if I, my memory serves me right, was in 2000. Uh, that was in Leicester. Uh, it was to, to do with the Intifada, um, the Al-Aqsa Intifada, uh, and we had a protest in Leicester, and that is how I started. And then we joined uh, the coalition of the Stop the War coalition against the war in Iraq, where we took, I think, the biggest demonstration there was one, over one million people marched in Hyde Park, uh, if you recall that. Uh, and then we have just grown from that, I think. There's people who say on social media, even in person, they said, what's the point of a protest? Your, your voices won't get heard. You, you can protest all you want, but it doesn't affect change. Well, let's look at our own history. Uh, let's look at the Iraq war. Of course, despite the fact that one million people came out on the march, the war did take place. A million people in Iraq, estimated million people died. But if we hadn't demonstrated, those people who carried out the war would have been paraded across as champions. Today, they are walking in the shadows. Yeah? None of them can show their face in public. Yeah? We have made that possible, that those people who carried out the war cannot have an open platform in the public arena. But the second aspect, I think more important, and I think this relates to Palestine. Think about the people in Palestine today in Gaza who are under occupation. Uh, they do not know much what is happening. They, they can see that nobody in the world is helping them. They're not getting any food, no water, no medicine. They're being bombed. But every now and then they'll get a message that people in London marched, or people in New York marched, people in Paris marched, people in Johannesburg marched. And they, at that split second, think that we are not alone. There is somebody out there. And that gives them courage. That gives them hope. And just for that, I think it's worth it. To give hope to the oppressed who is being bombarded, I think it's worth it to go out and send that hope to them. What's the response you have in the protest or after the protest from... MPs or councillors, because you, you have MPs with you, you have sure. councillors with you, yeah. of course, naturally you've got MPs and councillors against, but then when you protest, what's the MPs on the other side, what do they say to it, or do they just say completely silent? Because obviously we have the narr sure. narrative, sure. this is an anti-Semitic protest, but it's not, it's fighting for freedom. Let me tell you for something for definite, that once protest takes place, every government department knows about it. 
whether they're publicly acknowledged in the Senate, but they do know about it. So they know it's, a, if you like, a litmus test of what the country is thinking. And they understand that if the country moves to oh, completely away from their way of doing things, they would have to shift. Otherwise, they'll not be re-elected. That's the first thing. But the other thing as well is if you look at the, the history of present protests in the last three weeks, in the first protest, we had not a single MP, right? Not a single MP, not a single trade unionist. In the second one, we had about a handful of trade unionist leaders uh, and pivotal players. In the third protest we had, that was last Saturday, we had, I think, four or five MPs come. So you can see that despite uh, their political, in fact, in Labour here saying, you know, strongly advising MPs not to go, they have broken rank. And for us to break that rank shows that there is humanity within certain individuals, which is more important than what the political leaders are telling them. And we need to bring more and more on board. So yes, it is very helpful uh, to, to bring more people on board. It emboldens the MPs as well, those who want to speak up. By us protesting, we're giving them the mandate to say that, look, people are demanding this and therefore they have to do it. So we're also helping people in Britain itself and of course, more importantly, people in Palestine and beyond and above that is hopefully try and bring about justice and an end to occupation. How many people are you expecting at the next protest? Even more? We hope we, hope we match last time. Uh, you know, we had a phenomenal uh, number. Again, you know, this is all debatable. If you look at the BBC, they'll tell you 100,000. But from my history, uh, if it is worth anything for the past 20 years demonstrating, uh, I would say we were around 300,000 uh, people came out. Uh, and it was huge and because I know that there were as many people for the first time when demonstrated behind the stage as they were in front of the stage. Uh, it was absolutely covered the whole area, the whole of Downing Street, through Trafalgar Square uh, and people up to Parliament Square. You know, it's completely covered. So we know there's approximately 300,000 people. Along with the protests, we're having calls to boycott certain organisations. Sure. I think you have some on your sure. website as well. People say, well, what's five pound, spending five pound on a coffee in Starbucks, what difference is that going to make? There's several uh, angles to look at this. Uh, the first is your first ethical position. I mean, would you want to consume something that is stolen? Would you want to consume something that empowers a country that is carrying out occupation, carrying out apartheid policies, carrying out subjugation, torturing people, kids? denying them basic human rights. Do you want to be part of that? So forget the amount of money, just think of it from ethical perspective. Right? As Muslims, of course, I don't want to go into the dimension of Hadith and Quran, but think about it as just as a human being. Do you want to be part of that? Of course not. You ask any individual, most individuals will say, we don't want to be part of that. So therefore, on that basis alone, you should not consume anything to do with Israel because it's doing all that, all the above I've mentioned. But the other aspect, is think about this thing. It's your five pounds. But you know, a bullet cost about five pounds. Right? Now, in a very unfortunate situation, imagine it's that five pounds that goes directly into the coffers of the Israeli Defense Forces and buys that bullet. You're complicit. Mm. Yeah, you are complicit in that. And you don't want to be part of that. And you need to be able to use your economic power you need to make that decision, which part of the fence you stand on. You want to stand on the side of justice or not. And that's a decision everyone has to make. And I think it's very simple. And of course, I can justify this even on Islamic perspective. 
that uh, there was a period there's a Sahaba by the name of Mama radiallahu anhu. He accepted Islam in the fourth year of Hijri uh, in Medina. And after accepting Islam, he goes to Mecca. This is time Mecca is still ruled by the Quraysh and they're non-Muslims. And he tries to perform tawaf there. And they stop him because they realize that he's become a Muslim. Now, Thumama comes from an area called Yamama, which was supplying grain to, to the Quraysh. So when they stopped him, he says, you know, I want to praise my Lord here. I want to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you're going to stop me from practicing my faith, then I'm going to stop supplying you grain. I'm going to, to use today's language, I'm going to boycott you. Right? The Prophet said, fine, let you boy carry on your boycott. So this is in our history as well. And of course, the Prophet himself was boycotted by the Quraysh for three years. Mm -hmm. So we have that heritage, that historicity, <coughs> in which we can learn from the seerah of the Prophet that boycott is part of uh, our Islamic ethos and principles. And of course, there are so many other hadith that talks about the fact that you should not handle stolen property, you should not aid those who are oppressing others and so forth. And, and they are very well known. What's the impact should we say that we've seen on the companies, or is it very, is a very little impact? Recently, there's a lot of noise on social media that share prices have dropped, but obviously stocks go up and down. So, yeah, they, they go up and down, but there have been definitely good wins. We had Ben and Jerry, uh, if you recall, ice cream uh, that has withdrawn, and Israel went into a fits, literally the Israeli establishment uh, over it. Uh, that shows the impact of the boycott. But also, just last year in 2022. Uh, if my memory serves me right, uh, Israel invested $13 million fighting against the BDS movement around there. Now, can you imagine a country that is spending that kind of money? It's because you're effective. Mm. Yeah, you are very, very effective. And they understand the effectiveness from the history of boycott because apartheid South Africa yeah, was brought down because of boycott, because it became so difficult for South, the racist white South Africans to do business because people around the world stopped buying their product. It, it, you just, basically, and particularly fruit and vegetable, used to rot. And that is a stage we need to bring Israel at. We have to exercise our power. And here, every individual yeah, has that power. And collectively, we can make this happen. So I think we should boycott. And I think what is very important as well with boycott is the strategy. I think uh, sometimes we become very emotional and we send a list of 20, 30, 40 companies. I think that is not conducive. Maybe some of the companies are, we should boycott them at individual level. But as an organization level, I think we should do a very strategic approach that we target three companies, like Friends of Alaxa does. Once we're successful with that, then we bring in another company. So, for example, for the moment, we're boycotting Hewlett Packard, HP, the computer. Uh, because they provide the intelligence and the IT and the software for checkpoints and for monitoring the Palestinians. So there's a direct relationship here uh, of them aiding the occupier. Uh, the second company we boycott is Puma, the sportswear, because Puma uh, sponsors the Israeli Football Association. Uh, and I think for any sportswear to sponsor a, a country uh, with that is carrying out occupation, I think it's not acceptable. And I think we should boycott that. So we have again a strange relationship. And the third is Coca-Cola. The reason we boycott Coca-Cola is because it has a plant, it has a factory in West Bank. Uh, and this is on Palestinian territory, and therefore it's legitimizing occupation. So they are the three products. But overall, what we say, they check the label. So it's a hashtag, check the label. When you go shopping, 
Alhamdulillah, most people check nowadays for calories, make sure they're not putting a lot of fat. Uh, but they also check for Muslims, they also check for halal and haram. So also do a third thing, check where it's from. Just see origin. If it's from Israel, don't buy it. Whatever it is. So that's a simple way of doing it. Is it the barcode as well? If it's a 927? That's right. There's a barcode. But what Israel has done now very cleverly is it mixes with other countries' products. So, for example, it might have 90% of produce that is from Israel and put 10% in there. So, for example, dates or, or tomatoes or something like that. Then it becomes a mixed origin. When it becomes a mixed origin, then they, they would have to put it as a label that the majority is from Israel, but otherwise it, it could also be just called mixed origin. So yes, and this is again the success of boycott. That for, for them to having to take these tactics is a success of boycott. And here again we see the duplicity of Europe and Britain, that generally you know, they talk about ethical values, they talk about not supporting the occupiers, yet they don't do anything to Israel, and they, they're not only allowing Israel to import uh, their goods here, but also supporting Israel with arms. I mean, at a time when it's carrying out massacres, experts are saying we are potentially seeing a genocide unfolding in Gaza. And our government is sending ships, our government is sending money, America is sending billions of dollars with military hardware. I mean, you know, we, we, then we are perplexed, our youth are also perplexed, that how can we live in this duplicitous state? And, and for us, I think we should calm down. And what we need to do is try and lobby and campaign and try and use that and bring the majority of the population on our side and try and win that war. There was, I think, you just said America sends billions for weapons and I think they've asked Biden for 10, Israel has asked Biden for 10 billion. That's extra, yeah. And in contrast, UK have pledged, I think it was 10 million pound in aid or 20 million pound in aid. So we can see the contrast there. Mm. And that's 20 million to Palestine. So when you look sure. at for weapons and the amount for weapons and amount of in aid, you can just see it's a hundred times less. You know, sending aid to Palestine by the British government is almost insult. Uh, what the reason is insult is you can't arm one side, uh, tell them to go and kill the Palestinians and give the Palestinians some money to, to feed themselves. I mean, this is barbarity. I'm sorry to use that word. And you, what kind of humanity is this that all you want is Palestinians to be fed before they're killed? That's what you're saying. Let them eat a bit and then kill them. Why don't they simply stop selling arms so that they don't, Israel has not the power to kill? Or at least call for a ceasefire in this instance. Stop killing. I mean, it is despicable that the British government this week in the United Nations, when there was a motion passed for a humanitarian pause, there's a motion passed to say, let's have a humanitarian pause for a ceasefire so at least we can send some aid. And guess what Britain did? It abstained. It mm. couldn't even get itself to vote for that. I mean, what moral authority has the government got to teach anybody around the world about humanity or equality or justice? And this is the time we're living in. And this is the government we've got. So we need to be very much mobilized. Every individual needs to do whatever they can and change this dynamic. On the subject of aid, you mentioned that obviously you're a political organization, not a charity organization. Sure. But how can people get more involved in terms of what can they do to help the Palestinians? Sure. In Britain, we would recommend they join organizations like our Friends of Al-Aqsa, and particularly join our social media, because when we ask for campaigns and alerts, 
we need people to do something. And of course, the one way to get aware of that is through joining the social media. You can also become members of Friends of Halaxa, help us trying with our campaigning and lobbying and financing. But more than that, I think particularly at this time, what is required is funds for Palestine, in particular Gaza. Gaza has been devastated. And a lot of people have asked me that while there's a blockade, how will the money go in? Which is a very legitimate question. And I have asked a few charities the same question. And alhamdulillah, you know, what they've done is amazing. Uh, the charity I spoke to, uh, I won't mention the name because I haven't spoken to all the charities and others might be doing the same thing. Uh, but the charity I spoke to, uh, what they did just before the bombing, uh, they made sure that they had people on the ground in Gaza who went and bought stock from the shops of what was available and what they could get through into Egypt. So they had large quantity, but uh, that is now running out. And they, they, once they bought it, they were giving it up free. Now that's running out and they bought it on credit because they couldn't get the money there anyway. So they need to pay that back. And that's why they need the money. The second is, of course, a lot of people must have seen the images just outside Rafa crossing. There are hundreds of trucks there. Mm. Uh, and again, there are many charities there just waiting. They've already bought the goods uh, with the expectation that people will donate so that once uh, the crossing opens, they'll be able to take the goods in. And thirdly, of course, inshallah, we hope sooner rather than later this will stop and the people will require the funds. And then if the charities try to collect the money at that stage, unfortunately, most of us have very short memory and they won't be able to collect the money. So what I would suggest and recommend is people first identify a charity they trust, they know very well, and then donate to them uh, because they will carry out the work either now or very, very immediately soon uh, as possible as it were. So yeah, do support them and of course, also then support the organizations here like ours who are trying to work because remember the issue of Palestine is not a natural catastrophe. Palestinians don't need money because they're poor. They don't need money because there's a disaster like an earthquake or a hurricane. They need money because they're occupied. Once the occupation ends, they won't need money. So we have to work to end the occupation. And the way to end the occupation is to then support non-governmental organizations like ours and others who are doing work uh, so that we can bring that to end. And then the Palestinians can be a free people. You know, the Palestinians are entrepreneurial. They, they don't need our help. Those who have visited it, every individual, in fact, would say that I've spoken to when I asked them, do they ask for money? And they will tell you they don't ask for money at all. They say, we don't want your money. We want your help to help for us to become free. And that, I think we shouldn't forget that context in the long run. But immediately, of course, you know, we need millions for the people in, in Gaza. So if someone donates to a charity and they have someone on the ground, sure. depends on, of course, the yes, charity, sure. but they have someone on the ground who can mm -hmm. then buy whatever stock is there, as long as obviously they have stock. That stock is uh, uh, depleted now. What, what was done is they already bought it. Uh, so that is, that may very be fine, but there is very little left in Gaza now, as far as food is concerned. But the charities did buy it in advance of the bombing and they've been giving out. So this is a question you should ask your charity. Do you have somebody on the ground? Do you have trucks waiting to go in? When will you spend this money? And of course, the charities that give you the positive answers with your their track record and your trust in them, then give them the money. You mentioned Palestinians are entrepreneurial. Before this attack, because the media making it like this whole conflict, as the word they use, started from October 7th. But before this attack, what was the day-to-day -day life in Gaza, in Jenin, in the West Bank? 
Let's go back before that as well. So if we look uh, in the early 20th century, Gaza was a major export of cotton uh, uh, and oranges and Palestine, not just Gaza, sorry, Palestine overall. Uh, they used to, they were selling soap, olive oil, so they were major exporters of these products, right? Uh, and it went around the world. So they were never, uh, it was a never a barren desert. It wasn't a, a abandoned land. The Palestinians used it, right? Once occupation took place uh, in 47, 48, of course the Palestinians then were deprived. Uh, and after 67, uh, what we then now come in the present stand, Gaza itself, uh, first they were forced to have an election in 2006. Uh, in which the Palestinian people elected Hamas as a government. The international community did not like it, uh, and therefore they put a siege in 2007. And when I say a siege, what that means is nothing can go into Gaza or out of Gaza without the permission of Israel. Normally, the Gaza is referred to as an open prison, but I would say, I would say it's not an open prison, because when you have a prison, the prison guard have to give you three times meal a day. Yeah. In Gaza, they don't provide you. If you're in a prison, you are allowed visitation from your relatives. In Gaza, you're not allowed to visit them or they're not allowed to go out. So it's not a prison, but it's a concentration camp. It is the most densely populated place in the world. You know, it has something like 2.3 million people living in 40 kilometers by 12 kilometers. Nothing goes in from the land, nothing goes in from the air, nothing goes in from the sea. In fact, Dov Weiglas, a minister a couple of years ago, boasted that we control the amount of calories going into Gaza so that they just barely survive. They don't die of starvation, but they're not strong enough to stand on their two feet. And this is a public knowledge. So this is the kind of oppression that has been taking place on people in Gaza. And you might think, you know, there's a sea, the Mediterranean Sea, they would be able to go and fish and enjoy the uh, waters. But that also is restricted. There's an Israeli uh, navy that, that guards that. Palestinians at one stage could not even go up to seven nautical miles to even fish. If they try, even in, within that area, they are regularly bombarded. The little boats are then destroyed and their livelihood are taken away. So every aspect of Palestinian life is controlled. Even at one stage, they even banned coffee into Palestine. Medicine is regulated. So all the basic necessities are controlled by Israel. In that sense, that's why I call it a concentration camp. And we should be very clear. In West Bank, similar stuff. As I, we already discussed that West Bank is covered by a 700-kilometer wall encircling cities. It has over 600 checkpoints. That means the first thing that goes is the freedom of movement. Uh, you have no rights to move around. Uh, you have no rights, of course, to then exercise your faith because you, you can't travel to, say, Masjid al-Aqsa from West Bank because Israel then controls it. Uh, you, you have no right of political expression. Uh, you have no right even water. So, for example, most of the water Israel gets is from the West Bank aquifers because it's the re very rich in water resources. Palestinians are not allowed to drill that water. Only Israel can. And Israel takes that water and sells it to the Palestinians at 10 times the rate it sells it to the Israelis. Not only that, but they get, get almost 80% less water than the Israelis do. So you would see settlements with swimming pools, settlements with water, 24-7 you know, running water, whereas the Palestinians have one tap at the end of their street where they have to go and collect water. So this is the daily oppression upon the Palestinian people. 
and they, they live this in day in day out. And we talked about the right of education as well, where children might end up at school, but the teacher will not make it because of the checkpoint. Or sometimes it could be the other way around, the teachers in the school, the, the students haven't made it. We have had so many uh, of our sisters give birth at checkpoints because they will stop uh, ambulances going through or deliberately provoke them, make them wait. Many people have lost their lives. Uh, and, you know, just before October 7th, 200 Palestinians were killed in the West Bank. 200 in West Bank alone. 20 of them were children. And this is a daily occurrence for the Palestinians. It has been since 1947-48. How, how does the checkpoints work? Because you mentioned if they want to open it, close it, pretty much whenever they want. But how do they pass it? Is there like a long queue or how long does it take for them? There are several types of checkpoints first. Uh, the first, something called the flying checkpoints, where uh, an Israeli army could set up a checkpoint anywhere they like, literally. Uh, and they are, if you like, emergency points, almost like a police stop in Britain. But here, they are only for Palestinians. Uh, if there's Israeli, then they are allowed to go in. So there's racism there straight away and a discrimination. And no reason is given. You know, they could do it randomly uh, just because they want to do it and they want to punish the Palestinians. Uh, that's one type of checkpoint. The second and more important checkpoints are where they have gated entrances, uh, where Palestinians have to go through tunnels, like almost like cattles, uh, and then they have to come to a checkpoint where they have to show their ID card. The ID card is cleared, and then they, they are allowed out from the checkpoint. And that could take several hours. So a journey that would normally take you 15 minutes, you should add one hour on top of that. So people, what here it means that if you want to go to work, uh, instead of taking that 15-minute journey, now you're taking one and a half hours going and one and a half hours coming. So you're taking three hours on top of your work. And you might not even come back. And, and you might not come back, exactly. Uh, and and they're, they're sort of, that is the dilemma and the crisis of the daily life of the Palestinians. What's the next step or the next phase for Friends of Al-Aqsa? We, we continue to empower our people in Britain. We want to make this a national movement. We want to make sure that the voice of justice is heard, international law is respected, and um, justice is meted out to the Palestinians so that we can have peace. What that, peace, what that looks like on the ground is up to the Palestinians. What we have to do from here is we have to make sure that the uh, oppression ends and the occupation ends. And we have to make sure that we are, we can bring our politicians uh, to understanding that and those who are not, then they're held accountable. And I think that's very important. And that can only happen through more education uh, and making sure that the people of this country understand how much power they hold. Because the biggest obstacle that we seem to have, or I feel, the people think that they're helpless. And no, you have to tell them you're not helpless. You can change. You know, major movements in the world take place because individuals make collective, then they join collectively and bring about a change. Nothing changes on its own. And we, at that point here in this country, I think, that the majority of people in Britain, even now, I think there's just poll done recently with something like 60% said there should be an immediate ceasefire. And they're, of course, on the side of humanity. And they're the people we need to uh, tap into uh, and, and galvanize to get them to work throughout the, the year 
every day of the year to make sure that we can bring about the change. And I am very much convinced that the good nature of the British people, as they have shown historically, not the establishment of people, they are a force that will bring about a change and they will play a pivotal role in freeing the people of Palestine. I think it's also important to note that even, yes, if there is a ceasefire, the occupation continues. That's right. And then we have to fight for the rights of Palestinians until Palestine is free. Absolutely. We need the right of self-determination. We need the basic stuff. At the moment, of course, we're asking for ceasefire. This is immediate and now. It's an urgent emergency case, if you like. Uh, to put it in medical concept, it's absolutely emergency. But there is a long-standing uh, ailment here, and that ailment is the occupation. That ailment is the siege of Gaza. So we need to ask the end of siege of Gaza, and we need to ask for an end of occupation for the self-determination of the Palestinian people. They have a right uh, to be free. They have a right to determine who governs them and how they govern. We cannot have an external power like Israel determining and dictating upon the Palestinians how they should live. Normally in this podcast I have a question where I relate back to the guests' earlier life, but I'll change it this time. So if you had a 10-year-old child in Gaza next to you now, what would you say to him or her? You know, you ask a very difficult question because one way I would, I would feel very pain that I haven't been able to do enough for that person, for the 10-year-old. And I would feel that tenure to be more superior than myself, that they have been able to live the life they do and still stand up and show their humanity. Yet we living in the comfort that we do, uh, we haven't been able to, to give them the help that they deserve. So I think the first thing I would do is take a promise, or give a promise rather, uh, that I will try and do whatever I can, that by the time they're my age, they'll be a free people and they'll be living happily together with all the people and the different people in the region as humanity. And what's your one final message to the world, to everyone who's listening? In the past, we have always questioned ourselves, how did the genocide take place? How did that catastrophe take place? How did the Holocaust take place? And we question and think, if we were there, we wouldn't have let that happen. Well, there's a genocide taking place right now in Gaza. And we have to do something. And each and every one of us has the power to change. If we do whatever we are capable of doing, whether it be boycott, campaigning, lobbying, educating, protesting, making simple dua, do whatever you can and bring about a change. And you united, we will be able to bring about peace. Thank you very much. Thank you very um, much. Brian. Thank you for coming on and educating us about Palestine and the current situation. And we'll put a link to your website as well in the description. Okay, thank you very much.